following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity and was recorded at Westminster Chapel in Toronto. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to declare the Lordship of Jesus Christ over every area of life, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Our scripture reading this morning is from 2 Samuel. We're going to read verses 1 to 25. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had brought. Which he had brought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children, It used to eat his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. The Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. 
He then went to his own house, and when he had asked, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servant said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? I cannot bring him back again. I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went in to her and lay with her. And she bore a son and called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. Now let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, we get today to finally return to our series in 2 Samuel. And if you can cast your mind back uh, 12 weeks or so, uh, we left off uh, the account of 2 Samuel in chapter 11 with this incident with David and Bathsheba in uh, the 11th chapter of 2 Samuel. So we know we've had a hiatus for some time and we've been thinking about what it means to be more than conquerors and now we're returning to our series in this important book. We can be uh, thankful today, of course, for God's grace and goodness to us that we're back together and at the same time we're mindful of those who are still nervous and are vulnerable and uh, we're going to be thinking, no doubt, and praying for those today who are not with us this morning, who are part of this family. Now, today's uh, scripture reading regarding the um, murder and adultery in the life of David is actually a very, very well-known passage in the Bible, interestingly enough. In fact, this account for centuries, really, has been part of the popular knowledge of Uh, Western consciousness. In fact, uh, one of my favorite uh, musicians, Sting, uh, wrote a song about it. It's called Mad About You. It's it's that much part of popular consciousness that contemporary songs have actually been written about this particular incident. So probably when we were going through the reading this morning, this was a This is a passage, unlike other passages in 2 Samuel that you probably haven't revisited frequently, this is one that's well known uh, to most of us. Now you'll recall that in the previous chapter, chapter 11, so the context for today, is that from his roof, uh, when he should have been out at battle with his men, David sees the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba, bathing, and He takes her to his own bed secretly, and when he fails to adequately cover his tracks, he tries to cover his tracks first of all, when he fails to adequately do that, he arranges for the death of her husband by having Uriah's 
Uriah sent to the front lines of the conflict and then having his fellow soldiers withdraw from him at a crucial moment so that he's left alone to fight and he fell by the sword. So we have a kind of premeditated conspiracy to murder. That's the context of today's uh, account. And David actually sends a message to one of his commanders, Joab, with the plot. The plot's carried out. The plot is successful. And after a period of mourning for her husband, David takes Bathsheba as his own wife. And that's where we leave chapter 11, where the last words of chapter 11 are, interestingly, however the Lord consider what David had done to be evil. The Lord considered what David had done to be evil. Now, the Traditional focus in expounding this passage is examining David and his reaction to the prophet's parable. You know, Nathan begins uh, his challenge to David with a, with a parable. And the typical approach to the passage is to deal with that and David's response. But in this short time we have this morning, I actually want to focus on Nathan himself and the role of the prophet Nathan and the role of the prophet. So we're going to talk about the role, then the risk, then the reward of the prophet. Easy to remember, kids. The role, the risk, the reward of the prophet. So first, let's think about the role of the prophet. So Nathan, the prophet Nathan, is prominent in the court of King David uh, during his reign. He's actually introduced to us, first of all, in chapter 7. Maybe you remember that in 2 Samuel chapter 7 when Nathan has a more pleasant task to, to, we'll talk about that in a moment. The role of the prophet then was not just to advise the king. You see Nathan doing that. David uh, is taking the advice of Nathan in, in uh, chapter 7 about the Lord's house and whether he should build the temple and what he's going to do. And Nathan says to him, go and do everything that's in your heart to do. God is with you. He's advising the king. But the role of the prophet is to proclaim the word of God to the people and their leaders. And in this case today, what we're, in this incident that we're looking at this morning, including to the heads of state. So David's responsibility, uh, Nathan's responsi- responsibility wasn't just guidance, it wasn't just advice, it wasn't just speaking to the people, it was even to speak the truth to government, to kings. And we've read up to this point that David has been busy sending his messengers here and there so that he can carry out his plot. Send a messenger here, send a messenger there, David getting his way. But now, God sends Nathan with his word to David. So the task of the prophet, the role of the prophet, is to be a faithful messenger. A faithful messenger to speak the word of God as the command word of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, to declare the sovereign will and purpose of the Lord. And of course, there are lots of great prophets in the Scripture. I mean, when we think of great prophets, we don't immediately think of Nathan. The Older Testament, who would we typically think of as the representative, the archetypal prophet is Elijah. Elijah is the archetypal prophet. That's why he's there on the mountain of transfiguration, the law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah. And the call of Elijah, like all of the prophets, is to 
be representative of the prophetic call of God and to speak boldly the word of God even in the face of opposition. That's the calling of the prophet. In the New Testament, who was the greatest prophet? Well, John the Baptist. Jesus says so. John the Baptist is the one who comes as a prophet and he prepares the way for the great prophet, priest, and king. The Lord Jesus Christ himself. The great prophet, priest, and king. The incarnate one who is prefigured by all of the great kings and uh, prophets and patriarchs of the Older Testament. And actually now, in Jesus Christ today, because we are in Christ, we too are prophets. Did you know that you were a prophet? Because in Christ, who is our prophet, priest, and king, and we are being conformed to the image of his son, we are prophetic, priestly, and kingly in Jesus Christ. We may not occupy the office of the prophet, but we each have a prophetic calling. I've often actually thought about my own work, and I hope this isn't hubris, I've often thought about my own work in Christian cultural philosophy and Christian apologetics as a form of prophecy, a form of prophecy. It's not simply thinking, it's not just philosophy, it's prophecy. Why? Because it represents, it represents, that's all the word represent means, to represent the fullness, hopefully, of a scriptural understanding of reality and then speak to the cultural issues of the age in terms of the scriptures. That's a form of prophecy to speak in terms of the direction of the Word of God. But one of the greatest challenges of fulfilling our calling in Christ as prophets is that we're sent like Nathan to bring a message that's sometimes a difficult message. And in our own time, it's to bring a message in the context of false prophecy within our culture. When everybody's prophesying the truth, it's probably easy to be a prophet. You just join in. But what if all around you there is false prophecy? And then the challenge is a little different, isn't it? In our environment today that is gripped by various fears and violence that we've seen in the West in the streets and loud shouts for justice, we have to be diligent that by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, we test the spirits. That's what the prophets do in the New Testament. They test the spirits the zeitgeist of the age, to test the spirit of the age against the Word of God, against Scripture and all our work and service. In all of our work and service to the Lord, we have to test it. We test the spirit of the age, and then we submit to the Word of God, and we boldly speak the truth. That's what the prophet does. This week, I was uh, reading a number of articles in a philosophy journal that hail the 19th century German philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche. Who's heard of Nietzsche? Let's have some congregational participation. Who's heard of Nietzsche? Almost everyone, right? The famous German philosopher, hailing him as a prophet. A prophet. 
He's depicted, actually, on the cover, I brought it for you, of this, uh, by a cartoon of this journal as, um, there he is, as a prophet holding a tablet of stone on the top of a mountain with a question mark, which I thought was interesting. Dressed in a robe, holding a tablet of stone with a big question mark on it. Who's going to speak the word to the age? Nietzsche predicted, actually, a crisis in human history. And I have to be careful how I say this. I actually like Nietzsche a little bit, right? Because I think he was honest to a degree. Right? He was, a, he was a, a, a very foolish man. He was quite insightful, but he was a foolish man. He wasn't informed by the wisdom of God, but he had interesting insights and he predicted a crisis to do with the erosion of binding transcendent standards. That is, moral laws and standards that transcend our opinions, human opinion. That have a root in the divine, in God. He predicted the decline of the Christian faith and the rise of nihilism. What's nihilism? It means basically a sense of meaninglessness. That there is no transcendent meaning. Life is a game. For Nietzsche, it was just a one big... Reality was a big game. And in some respects, he was far-sighted because he understood the moral and cultural consequences of unbelief. And many of his ideas have actually impacted the West today. We're seeing the ugly fruit of Nietzsche's prophecy in our era. And he actually understood the role of the prophet, too. He understood it as speaking for God and exposing illusions. The difference is, Nietzsche's God was man. Nietzsche's God was man. And he thought it was his task to tear down everybody else's illusions about the world. Nathan's God was the living God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who loves, provides for, and governs all things in wisdom, mercy, and truth. Nietzsche's God was man and his will to control and dominate. That's not Nathan's God. The heart of, and I just accept the philosophy lesson for a couple more minutes, the heart of, the root of Nietzsche's prophecy was a lying spirit. It was a lying spirit. It was persuasive, but it was a lying spirit, a doctrine of devils that vehemently denied these things, human freedom, responsibility, and accountability before God. That was the essence of everything he was driving at, a denial of human freedom responsibility and accountability before God. All prophecy presupposes the spirit of Nietzsche or of Nathan. There's one you can remember, right? The spirit of Nietzsche or of Nathan. Man as a God unto himself or as a created image bearer of God. One's the spirit of Nietzsche, one's the spirit of Nathan. Nathan. 
Man is an unaccountable slave of blind forces and carnal urges. Or man is morally responsible and accountable to God. Those are the two spirits at work in the world. The Bible says so. There's the sons of God, and then there's the children of disobedience. The sons of God and the children of disobedience. Nietzsche prophesied that moral responsibility had to be renounced, for man cannot and must not be accountable for his actions. That's what he believed. To him, this to him was actually the spur to liberation. What was it liberation from? Liberation from responsibility, authority, and hierarchy. Liberty from liberation, from responsibility, authority, and high hierarchy. He was the, in many respects, seen as the great anti-Christian prophet. And let me suggest this to you. He would have celebrated what's going on in our culture today. Oh, Nietzsche would have been a great supporter of everything that's taking place. He would have supported calls for the abolition of the police and courts from Nietzsche. He would have supported the destruction of profit, property calls for the breaking up of the family, the pulling down and renunciation of history, sexual liberation, the freeing of criminals, the emptying of prisons, the coercive redistribution of wealth. That's a wonderful game to Nietzsche. And he would have wanted to recruit people, get them on board, bring them on board with the revolution. He would have joined the mobs in England who want to pull down the statues of Puritans like Oliver Cromwell and John Knox. Do you know the statue of John Knox today is having to be guarded by police officers in Glasgow? He's one of the founders of evangelicalism. Do you know that Knox was a slave on a galley ship to the French. Doesn't matter. Pull him down. Pull down the spirit of Knox, who said, give me Scotland or I die for the gospel. Nathan comes to David in the opposite spirit of Nietzsche. He comes to King David, not in terms of the false prophecy of Marx, but with the word and law of God and the judgments of the living God. It didn't matter what David's position was. Nathan held King David accountable to the very hierarchy, the inescapable hierarchy that our culture so vehemently rejects. Accountability to God and his law. A transcendent law grounded in the sovereignty of God. Nietzsche offered himself as guide and prophet, and many in our culture have followed him, albeit indirectly, they've probably never read him. But Nathan exemplifies the calling of the believer as a prophet, faithfully holding kings and cultures accountable to the word of God. That's the role of the prophet. That's the calling of the prophet. It's part of the calling of the church, therefore. It's the path of the prophet. So are you a Nietzsche or a Nathan? 
You caught up with the zeitgeist of the age? Is that who you speak for? Or do you speak for the living God? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The name Nathan actually means gift. Gift. He was God's gift to Israel and to David. Are you a gift of God in your sphere of influence? Are you a prophetic gift of God in your family? In your workplace? In your school? In your university? That's the role of the prophet. The risks of the prophet. Well, when, when you faithfully execute the role of the prophet, there are risks associated with that. There are risks associated with it. The first time Nathan had prophesied to David, it was actually to communicate God's remarkable promise to David's house. It was a wonderful prophecy. Prophecy of blessing. It was rest from battle. The everlasting establishment of his throne. And a great and enduring name. That was the first prophecy that Nathan had to bring to David. That's a message most of us would be excited and happy to deliver, wouldn't it be? Especially to people in authority. To go and tell them how great their name is and how wonderful their house is and how God's going to bless them. And, I mean, that's going to get you a good slap on the back. To tell someone or a culture, though, what it's hoping to hear, what it wants to hear is one thing. To tell people what they don't want to hear, maybe what they even despise or resent. What they're hiding from. What they're covering up. That's a bit more difficult. On this occasion, Nathan is required to bring a message of judgment that would bring death, division, and grief in David's house and kingdom. That's not so easy to share, is it? And Nathan had no idea how David would respond. No idea. Six months or so earlier, he'd murdered Uriah. Let's remember that. He'd murdered Uriah to secure the man's wife as his own to cover up his coercive adultery. So, David's a sinner. By the way, that's a good reminder about all kings, rulers, figures in history. We belong to a fallen, sinful humanity. Nobody's perfect. You want to pull down the statue of everybody who sinned? There's no statues left. You want to take down the portraits of everybody who sinned? There's no portraits left. Thank you. Nathan had no idea how David would respond then. He didn't know. What would now prevent David from exiling or even dispensing with such a minor prophet? This wasn't Elijah after all. It was just Nathan, one of the court's prophets. 
I wonder what Nathan was thinking. I was thinking about this week. What was he thinking that day as he made his way to the palace? Different from chapter 7, I would have thought. What was he thinking? Is this my last day? Serving in the king's court? Is this my last day to live? Is this my last day living in Israel? We have a tendency to think that prophets and apostles in Scripture are people who are above the fear of man, above despair, above a sense of futility, but they weren't. You look at the life of Elijah, the great prophet, and you see here was a man who was frail, Scripture says, just as we are. As frail as you or I. Who ran away from Jezebel, remember, hid in a cave, poor me, after a tremendous victory over the prophets of Baal. Nathan was no different. He had brought a message of blessing and joy to David in the past. Now he had to bring a word of covenantal discipline and judgment, and that involved risk. You want to be God's prophet? You have to accept some risk. You want to be a Christian? You want to be in Christ? A prophet, priest, and king in Jesus Christ means to accept a certain amount of risk. Think about it, friends. I know that you, at your own school, young people, at your university, in your place of work, it's hard to go against the flow, isn't it? It's hard. It's difficult. We want to be accepted. We want to be liked. We want to be loved. We want to be part of the group. We want to feel like we belong. It's hard to speak for Christ as a prophet. It's hard to stand for truth. It's easier to follow the crowd. It's easier to be blown around by the wind. Who needs the aggravation? It's much easier just to be silent or even to nod and smile with what everybody's saying look as though we agree with the false prophecy that's all around us. The way of the prophet is hard and it's a dangerous road. Look at the Lord Jesus himself. But I love the words of one of the great Puritan writers, William Gurnall. He said this, listen closely because the language is old. It's old-fashioned. We are commanded not to be conformed to this world not to accommodate ourselves to the corrupt customs of the world. The Christian must not be of such a complying nature as to cut the coat of his profession according to the fashion of the times or the humor of the company he falls in. The Christian must stand fixed to his principles and not change his habit but freely show what countryman that he is by his holy constancy in the truth. Now, what odium, that means how kind of offensive to the nostrils, what snares and what danger does this singularity expose the Christian to? 
The world counts the Christian for his singularity of life, the only fool. Now, in such a case as this, how many politic retreats, that's like to be prudent retreats, how many politic retreats and self-preserving distinctions would a cowardly, unresolved heart invent? The Christian that has so great opposition had need be well locked into the saddle of his profession or else he will soon be dismounted. If you're not, he's saying, locked into the truth, you're going to soon come off. You will fall off. You'll easily be knocked off. It's like an image from jousting. There's no vacation from the faith then if you're a prophet, friends. There's no holiday from the truth, from our calling. The way of the Christian prophet is one of perseverance. It's one of endurance. It's one of trust. It is a walk of faith in the reality that God's word cannot return to him void, but accomplish what, accomplishes what he sends it out to do. And sometimes that takes time. I was thinking about this this past week as I was preparing my message, and my mind was drawn to the words of Hebrews eleven thirty two. as I was thinking about Nathan. Listen to these words. Just listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. And what more can I say? The time is too short for me to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the raging of fire, escaped the edge of sword, gained strength after being weak, became mighty in battle, and put foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead. They were raised to life again. Some men were tortured, not accepting release so that they might gain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings as well as bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They died by the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins, in goatskins, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and on mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. All these were approved through their faith. They were sinners, but they were approved through their faith. But they did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us so that they would not be made perfect without us. Therefore, since all this prophecy, therefore, since we have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that lay before him endured a cross and despised the shame and sat down at the right hand of God's throne. There it is. There's the risk and the, the role, the calling of the prophet. Are we ready to risk all, to endure all, to walk the path of the Christian prophet, keeping our eyes on Jesus? It's a difficult path, but there is reward in it. And that's my last point, the reward of the prophet. 
Nathan goes to David with the prophetic word of God. And he tells him a parable which penetrates David's mind. We read the parable. I won't read it again because of time. Trying to keep things shorter, especially because all the children are in. It penetrates David's mind. And so much could be said here about the power of story, about the prophetic voice of the arts, about a prudential way of delivering a message. What is the best way to deliver this kind of a message? So much could be said about all of those things. We don't have time to digress onto that today. But clearly, for those of you who haven't picked it up already, David is the rich man, Uriah is the poor man, and Bathsheba is the ewe lamb in the story. But believing the account to be real in his own kingdom, when David hears it, he's outraged. He's outraged at the story. He's outraged that such an unthinkable thing could be done to someone in the name of hospitality. Made me think of how much the modern church accepts and endorses in the name of hospitality in our culture today. David is so incensed, he even argues that the man who did this deserves to die. But then he's thinking about God's law and he thinks, no, but actually he needs to make fourfold restitution. So in the law of God, if you stole an animal of value like that, you had to make fourfold restitution. You had to restore four sheep. Then comes the moment Nathan must have been dreading. And I actually imagine Nathan saying this with tears to David. As David has finished his speech about his outrage, thou art the man in the King James. You are the man. And that was the moment, that moment of challenge that he must have been dreading saying to David. And I think there probably were tears in the eyes of Nathan as he said it. And God goes on to remind David through Nathan of all the things that he's given him over all the years. And all the blessing he's poured out into David's life and everything that God has done for him and given to him. And he says, and I'd have given you so much more as well. But you have despised the commandment of the Lord. As my translation renders it, you have treated the Lord with contempt. Contempt by what you've done. You have despised the command of the Lord and in so doing you've despised God himself. And David would actually pay fourfold restitution in his four sons. The infant son, first born to Bathsheba, then Amnon, then Absalom, then Adonijah, untimely deaths of four sons. David's sin was 
indicative of our own culture, a culture that has despised the command of the Lord and has treated God with contempt. And that is part, friends, I'm afraid, of the message that we have to bring to our age. And we may not like that, to remind people of God's law. And it isn't comfortable reminding people of God's justice and truth and law. But this is part of the message of our age. I know that part of the message is, and we're coming to it in just a second, redemption, the love of God, the grace of God in the cross. But part of that message, if you're ever to want to come to the grace of God, as David did, is to understand the judgment of God, to understand the command of God, to understand how far short we've fallen of what God requires. There is no gospel without that. There is no good news about redemption from dead works and the curse of the law and sin and death unless there is a message of God's righteous judgments that we have despised the Lord's command and held him in contempt. If you can be in a court, a human court of law, and treat the judge with contempt and be held in contempt of court, how much more can we hold God himself in contempt We've scorned and rejected Christ and his commands. We've rejected our privileged inheritance. And we've despised the gospel. And as a result, we are paying a heavy cultural price. And you know who suffers the most? Our children. Our children. They're the ones who suffer the most. Nathan teaches us that actually we have to be ready to bear prophetic witness to power in the midst of crisis, disobedience, and judgment. Now let me digress very briefly. I want to give you a very short illustration, and forgive me because it is partly about myself. Part of the reason we are here today is because a few pastors challenge the government that they cannot treat the church of Jesus Christ as a non-essential service. So you may have seen it, but myself and a faithful brother in the Lord, who's a pastor in Windsor, Aaron Rock, wrote a letter to the provincial government. And you can go and read it at www.reopenontariochurches.ca. And we spoke as faithfully as we knew how, for the church of Jesus Christ. That the church cannot be dismissed as a non-essential service. That the church is ruled and governed by the Lord Jesus Christ. What you don't know is that after some conversations in the background, we got a brush-off letter. And there was a second letter. And in the second letter, there was the there was a description of the historical role the Church of Christ has played in the West, of the origin of our constitutional freedoms, of the Canadian coat of arms, of the charter, of our head of state, of what they swore to uphold and protect, of the significance and calling of the church in society and culture. And it led to, this letter led to a meeting that we were granted with senior officials in the office of the chief medical officer. 
including the deputy chief medical officer. A two-hour meeting for myself, this pastor Aaron Rock, two rabbis who we'd drawn into our campaign, Orthodox Jewish rabbis who were also campaigning to be allowed to worship in the city of Toronto, and a small handful of other pastors who joined us on the call and gave testimony about the significance and role of the church and what was happening in people's lives and their communities because of the lockdown of the churches. And I had an, a marvelous opportunity given to me by God to speak to all of these bureaucrats, these senior officials, about the significance of the claims of Jesus Christ. And then I said this to them. I said, if the state forbids what God commands or commands what God forbids, civil disobedience is a Christian duty. And I said it twice. If the state commands what God forbids or forbids what God commands, civil disobedience is a Christian duty. And we graciously and respectfully put them on notice that we answer first and foremost to the King of Kings. That was on the Friday. On the Sunday, I received a phone call from an MPP who I know well in the Ford government. He said, things are moving. It's had an impact. Policy's being drafted. You're going to hear Monday, 30%. And we did. Now, I don't tell you that to blow my own trumpet. You should know that I have a trumpet, but <laughs> I'm, I'm, not, I'm not telling you that to blow my own trumpet. There's other faithful people around, and 450 churches almost signed our letter from across the province. But they wrote to us saying, thank you for your leadership. Thank you for your leadership. Thank you for speaking. Thank you for speaking out. That's just a small practical example of one way that we can witness to the truth to defend God's people and bring wisdom and guidance to government. Who says we can't do it anymore? Who says we can't be Nathan anymore? How do you know what God's going to accomplish? It wasn't us who did it. We could have been brushed off time and time again. They were, when we went into that meeting with those bureaucrats from the Ford government, they were talking about six to 12 months of the church's lockdown. That's, that was their position. Now that's God. God who takes human words and adds his power and grace and grants us success and we're here today. And that's part of the reward of the prophet because God's word can't return void. What does the prophet Isaiah say? So my word that comes from my mouth, God says through Isaiah, will not return to me empty but it will accomplish what I please and will prosper in what I send it to do. The reward of faithful witness, of prophetic witness, this is the reward of prophecy, is seeing God work powerfully and redemptively in justice and righteousness and in truth. And if you never speak as a prophet, you'll never see it. You'll never have the joy of it. You'll never have the reward of it, of seeing how God can move through your faithfulness. And that's the reward of prophetic witness. Look what happened to David. Instead of responding like his stiff-necked predecessor, Saul, in rebellion, David is cut to the heart. It was months 
months since David had sinned and taken Bathsheba into his house as his wife, and he thought he'd gotten away with it, and his heart was hard. His heart was hard. So why now? Why did the word at that moment penetrate? This is what, let me just go back to William Gurnall. I'm on the edge of being finished. Just hang on a tiny bit longer, you little children. This is what he says. David sat for half a year under the public lectures of the law and the womb of his heart shut up till Nathan comes and God with him and now is the time of his life. He conceives presently, yea, and brings forth the same day falling presently into the bitter pangs of sorrow for his sins, which went not over till he had cast them forth in that sweet 51st Psalm. Why should this one word work more than all the former, but that God now struck in with his word? Presently, the eyes of his understanding open and his heart burns within him while Nathan speaks to him. Do you see, if you don't speak, look at all the lives that are being unaffected. How is God supposed to work if you don't speak? How can anyone hear unless someone preaches to them? How lovely upon the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Romans 10, I think. That's the reward of a faithful prophet. A timely word spoken in obedience unlocks the hearts of people at the moment of God's choosing. And that's why he sends you and calls you to speak the word. When Nathan is finished speaking, he doesn't wait to gloat, you'll notice. He doesn't rejoice over the judgments. He quietly withdraws. He speaks, he quietly withdraws, he goes home, he leaves David to ponder the word of God, and we see that David does not attempt to justify or rationalize his sin, and his confession is on record. And even though David did have to deal with the temporal consequences of his sins in his life for years, God was gracious, God was forgiving, God was kind, and works his redemptive purposes through David anyway. And that must have been such a joy and a comfort to Nathan. Can you imagine what Nathan must have felt when he learns of David's confession and of David's repentance and read the 51st Psalm? To see God's word take effect, to see his redemptive purposes come to pass... Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, says David, according to your abundant compassion. Blot out my rebellion. Wash away my guilt. Cleanse me from my sin, for I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self, and you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. 
Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. That's David's response to the word of God. And in due season, in due time, another son is born to David and Bathsheba, a man who stands in the line of Jesus Christ himself, our Redeemer. His name was Solomon. Or as Nathan names him, Jedediah. Do you know what Jedediah means? Beloved of the Lord. Beloved of the Lord. He's the son of David and Bathsheba. But he's beloved of the Lord. And this is the way God turns these messages of covenantal discipline to redemption. And salvation. And grace. And if you never speak it, you never see it. David knows he'll die one day and be gathered to his people and go to the son who was taken from him, but he knows also the promise to his house will remain through Solomon. The line to the great redeemer will continue. And that's the prophet's reward, to see the reconciling and redemptive work of Christ accomplish as we speak the word faithfully and boldly, knowing it cannot return empty. The word of our God, the scripture says, stands forever. His word is forever established in heaven. So let's pray for one another today, just as the apostle Paul asked. What was Paul's prayer? Pray that I might be bold enough in him to speak as I should. Pray that I might be bold enough in him to speak as I should. Amen. This message has been brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share this content, but do not charge for it or alter it in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. For more resources, please visit ezrainstitute.ca.